Hill Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. tradition at Pearl Church for us to hear from our oversight team. So our oversight team is comprised of volunteers who serve in three-year terms and basically care for and govern everything related to Pearl Church. And so early in August, we heard from Linda, who talked about her hope for our community that by being at Pearl Church over time, this thing that we all experience, this deathly ailment called shame that that would slowly over time melt away and that our hearts would be filled with self-compassion, which of course then would help us to be more compassionate for others. And then Carrie shared. Uh, She began by being very honest in her uh, journey with infertility and the pain and sorrow and difficulty that that has been for her. And I just love that she shared that. She modeled that so honestly. I think um, hearing that, hopefully encourages all of us to be a little more brave and honest about our own brokenness and our own dreams that have at times gone awry. And then she concluded her sharing by talking about her hope for Pearl to move into becoming more intentionally an anti-racist community. So very good. I'm so very excited for us as a community to move into that intentionally over the coming years. And then last week, Rachel talked about uh, her own journey of coming out and the importance of finding an affirming community that could come around her and support her. And she shared that her dream for Pearl is that we would, over time, continue to spread our arms wider to wrap them more fully around every person who might come to this church and call it home. Because at this common table, every person belongs. And today, Chuck was supposed to be the final oversight team member to share, uh, and his plan was to talk about hope which I think we could all use right now, right? I mean, who's going to say no to more hope? We all need more hope. Uh, Unfortunately, Chuck is sick. He's sick as a dog. Uh, It's not COVID. He's been tested. And Chuck is a go-getter, and he was thinking, maybe I could do it. And we just thought, you know, hacking at church on Sunday, maybe not the best idea. Uh, So hopefully he'll share in a couple weeks uh, as opposed to today. As you know, it's an annual tradition besides the board sharing in the month of August for us on the Sunday of Labor Day weekend to hear the story of the Bible from beginning to end. So we start in Genesis and we work our way to the book of Revelation. As a Christian community, this story is important to us. The Bible is our ancient, messy, curious, to use Bonhoeffer's word, broken, yet sacred text about which we write on our website, this text shapes our language, orients our hearts, and directs the ways that we mark our days and live out our lives here on earth. And so every year we tell its story. 
However, every year I point out that not every book in the Bible progresses the story. And then I get caught up in talking about all of the books that don't progress the story before I get into the books that do progress the story. But then I begin to run out of time. And so usually, uh, by the time I get to the Gospels, a fairly important section of the Bible, I'm running out of time. And so I rush to wrap it up. And because of this, every year Jen says to me, you are trying to cover too much. If you're going to cover the story, cover the story. If you're going to talk about the books that don't progress the story, talk about the books that don't progress the story. But the whole thing in one Sunday is just too much. And I agree. And so having an extra Sunday that I wasn't expecting, this morning we're going to consider the books that don't progress the story of the Bible. So this will be a little bit less like a sermon, a little more like a class titled Geeking Out on the Bible. <laughs> That's what we're going to do this morning and, and next Sunday. Our Bible contains 66 books. 39 books are in the Hebrew Scriptures and 27 books are in the New Testament. Out of these 66 books, 17 books tell the story of Scripture. That's it, just 17 books. Those books include Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. So by way of the story of Scripture, that's it in the Hebrew Scriptures. And then moving to the New Testament, the books that tell the story of Scripture include the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts, and then finally the book of Revelation. That's another six books. So 17 books in total tell the entire story of the Bible. I think that's helpful for us to know, right? Like if, if somebody were to say, tell me about the Bible, I think we just look at this big thing that we often hold in our laps, and I, I, I think we don't know really how, how to talk about it or how to understand it or what kind of framework or grid we could look through to more fully comprehend it. But to realize that it's, it's really just 17 books that tell the whole story, I think those 17 books are something that we can get our minds and hearts around. So 17 books taken away from the 66 books leaves us 49 books. 49 books in Scripture that don't progress the story at all. And those are the books that we're going to consider this morning. Now, of course, 49 books is a lot to cover, right? So don't be afraid. We're not going to touch on every single one. Uh, on Labor Day, Reed College usually hosts a play in the park. And a few years ago, uh, the play was titled The Complete Works of William Shakespeare abridged, <laughs> which is really important, right? Of course, abridged. There's no way they could cover all of Shakespeare's works in detail. And so some of the stories were lumped together. For example, they wrapped their way through all of Shakespeare's tragedies. And then they sang their way through many of his comedies. Now, this morning, I'm not going to rap or sing. And, and that's good news, because uh, Brian won't let me be on the music team. <laughs> that's how bad it is. <laughs> uh, but I will be lumping some of these 49 books together because we just don't have time to cover every single one. And so beginning with the Hebrew scriptures, I'd like to introduce what is called Tanakh. Tanakh is a Hebrew ordering of the books in the Hebrew scriptures that's different from what most Western Protestants have as their ordering and their Old Testament rendering. So Tanakh is an acronym. In Hebrew, you don't have vowels. You only have vowel points. And so you have 22 consonants in the Hebrew alphabet. And Tanakh, so it's capital T, little a, capital N, little a, capital K. So it's T-N-K, and it's an acronym. So the T stands for Torah, which means instruction. And then the Nevim, the N is for Nevim, which means prophets. 
And then the K stands for Kethuvim, which means writings. And let me uh, briefly unpack this. I have some um, slides here. So we're going to start with Torah. Torah means instruction. And it covers Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Most maybe have heard of this being called the Pentateuch, the five books. Often it's called the law. I really like that Torah stands for instruction, right? Law is do this and, and, and you're going to be okay. Don't do this and things are not going to be okay for you, right? Do that and things are going to go really bad. Do this and things are going to be great. And so it's, it can easily become this tit-for-tat, petty kind of thing. But, but instruction Right? Like you're a dad and it's the day before Christmas and you have a swing set and it has 72,008 pieces and it comes with an instruction manual. That's actually really helpful. Right? That instruction manual helps you take all of this chaos and, and, and put an order to it to make sense to it. And so that's what, that's what the Torah is really intending to do. And we'll cover those books in detail next week when we work our way through the story of Scripture. Moving from the Torah, we get to the Nevim, which means prophets. And the Nevim breaks into two sections, uh, the former and the latter. And we have a slide for this as well. So the former includes Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Traditionally, Samuel and Kings are each one book. They're long books, and so eventually they got broken up into two scrolls. And eventually they came to be known as 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. But it's really just Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. And so the former Nevim, that finishes off the story of the Hebrew Scriptures. So it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. That's the whole story. Kings ends the story of the Hebrew Scriptures. And again, we'll cover those books next Sunday. Uh, but then moving from there, we get to the latter prophets, uh, which rather than continuing the story of Scripture, these books intentionally speak into the story. Here's what I mean. The latter prophets speak into the book of Kings. Now, the book of Kings tells about the kings of Israel before it divided into two kingdoms. It talks about the divided kingdoms. And the book of Kings also talks about Israel uh, going under with Assyria and then Judah going under due to Babylon. And so those books, these books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the book of the Twelve, the book of the Twelve is the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, all the way to to Malachi. In the Hebrew tradition, that's called the book of the Twelve. They're, they're actually considered, each book is like a chapter uh, that is this whole story. And as we'll see in a moment, the book of the Twelve moves very similar to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And so there's this progression in the book of Kings that goes from better to worse. That is to say, if you've ever read the book of Kings, over time, the kings, most of them, are more despicable and violent than those that came before them. And the kings just keep getting worse. And Israel just keeps falling into more and more disrepair. And it's into the reign of these kings and into the culture of Israel that these latter prophets speak. Now, when most of us think of a prophet, we think of someone foretelling the future. But a better definition for the latter prophet books in the Bible is uh, it's a word spoken from God to a prophet who then proclaims that word to a people or to a person. And so Isaiah is a prophet who regularly says, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. And Jeremiah, thus saith the Lord. And Ezekiel, thus saith the Lord. And the book of the 12, thus saith the Lord. And the prophets have a certain rhythm to them. There's kind of a three 
move rhythm to the prophet. So movement one is accusation. So the prophets are coming into the kings of Israel and to Israel and to Judah, and they're saying, you are struggling with justice, or you are lacking kindness, or you are failing to care for the most vulnerable among you. So it starts with accusation. And then it moves from accusation to um, punishment, which I think a better word than punishment is chaos. Because there's no justice, because there's no kindness, because there's no care for the most vulnerable among you, you as a nation are experiencing chaos. There's chaos. There's chaos in your politics. There's chaos in your relationships. There's chaos in your health, in your vitality. There's chaos in the creation of this world. Is this all of a sudden sounding very contemporary? (laughs) There's chaos. And, and then if Israel, if Israel repents, which means not to, to stop doing dumb, bad, immoral things, but rather it means to return to your deepest self, to your truest self, to your best self. Well, if you were to repent, then there's this hope of restoration. It's not too late. This chaos can be undone and order can rise from the ashes. These prophets are so full of hope. Hope. And hope is very much what we need today, isn't it? Live in ways that are not good toward yourself, toward others, toward creation. We are always going to experience chaos. It is baked into how this world operates. But chaos does not have to be the end of the story. Chaos can be an invitation into change, into repentance, and into all kinds of restoration and hope and goodness which I think is deeply what we're all holding to now, especially after these last 24, 17 months. Okay, so that's the latter prophets. Now I'm going to cover the Kethuvim, also known as the writings. Similar to the latter prophets, uh, the writings do not progress the story of the Hebrew scriptures. However, unlike the latter prophets, the writings don't speak into the story. So whereas Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the book of the Twelve, speak into the book of Kings, The Kethuvim are really just topical books. They're topical books. So like the book of Psalms, uh, sometimes these are considered, it's considered like a prayer book. Uh, Sometimes Psalms is considered a liturgy for Israel's worship. You could could say that Psalms is like the first hymnal that ever existed. It's, It's humans trying to reach out and articulate all of the troubles and hopes and desires and beliefs that they have in the world and that they have toward God. So that's Psalms. It's a, it's a book of prayer. And then we move into the wisdom books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, and Song of Songs. And these are probably my favorite books in the Hebrew scriptures. Proverbs is considered conventional wisdom. It starts out, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then from there, we go for 31 chapters where we're basically told one plus one is two, right? You do this and that is going to happen. You live a good life, and you're going to live a long life. You live a poor life, and you're going to live a short life. And it just makes sense. This is how the world often goes. Now, by the time you get to the end of Proverbs, many of us are thinking, you know, I'm not really sure that's how life goes, (laughs) right? Like, I know really good people who have died young, and I know really wicked people who have lived a long time, and so perhaps wisdom is, is broken, Well, then if that's you, skip Proverbs and just go right to Ecclesiastes, right? Because Ecclesiastes is meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Now, what's so beautiful about Ecclesiastes is by the time you get to chapter 12, it ends, so here's the end of the matter. Fear God, keep the commandments. 
So that's the end, right? But we have to go 11 chapters of meaninglessness to get to the end. And we religious people want to just skip those 11 chapters of meaninglessness. And we just want to get to the meaning, right? The meaning. But sometimes, especially in despair and brokenness, it's actually best and most helpful for our soul to just be in the meaninglessness. And that's an okay place to be. In fact, Ecclesiastes says there is space in this tradition to just be in the meaninglessness. Eventually, right, we can't be there forever. Eventually, there has to be some kind of turn. And the turn at the end of Ecclesiastes is the same as the beginning of Proverbs, which is to fear the Lord. Now, Job puts these two books together. So Job is like, Job is like Ecclesiastes. I'm suffering and I've done nothing wrong. Wisdom is broken. And Job's friends are like Proverbs. You've clearly done something wrong because bad things only happen to bad people. So if you just tell us what you did, then maybe we could get beyond the boils and the pain and the suffering and everything will be okay. And then Job's like, it's broken. Wisdom's broken. His friends are, no, it's not. You're broken and you're a liar. And it just goes back and forth and back and forth until we get to the end. And Job does exactly what we see at the beginning of Proverbs and the end of Ecclesiastes. He's kneeling before this divine whirlwind saying, I have no words to articulate what is happening. This is beyond me. I entrust myself to you. And then Song of Songs is this erotic love poem that basically is a play of the wisdom books. What we see in this is two lovers chasing each other, tackling each other, fighting with each other, yelling at each other, singing to each other, kissing each other, pushing each other, making love to each other. It's this incredible book. And there's this refrain in the book. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not awaken or stir up love until it is ready. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up or awaken love until it's ready. And so we're asking throughout the book, well, well, when is it ready? When is it ready? When is love ready? And then there's this other refrain, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. When is this wily, intoxicating thing called love ready to be woken? Well, in human love, it's when two people are ready to completely give themselves away to the other. And in that moment, even in the midst of human love, we could even say human intimacy, we actually see the truths of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, which is the self-surrender to the other in which the divine declares upon that is good. So very good. And then we move into the book of Ruth. Uh, Ruth sometimes comes after Proverbs, and it's intentionally like that in the Hebrew Scriptures, because if you've read Proverbs and you get to chapter 31, that's the woman of noble character. Do you know, all know what I'm talking about? So uh, if you grew up and you went to, like, church camp, girls are often told, this is what you're supposed to be like. And I'm not a girl, but if I were a girl, I'd be like, I don't know any girls like that. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty, pretty wild woman, right? And then, and then men growing up at, at like, church camps are told, you've got to find a woman like that. And the reality is, if there's a woman like that, she's not marrying any man. <laughs> that is just not going to happen. But, but really, uh, the woman of noble character is not a kind of woman that women are supposed to grow up to be and men are supposed to look for and marry. That is not what's going on. Chapter 31 is a summary of the book of Proverbs. This woman of noble character embodies all of the goodness of the book of Proverbs. And, and what we're being told at the end of Proverbs is that we are all to marry wisdom. Marry wisdom. If you wed your life with wisdom, your life will, more often than not, flourish. 
Wisdom is that good. Well, Ruth comes after Proverbs, and Ruth, we are told, it's the only other time in the Bible that we see this. Ruth is called a woman of noble character. And so we see what noble character looks like lived out in this world. Of course, the book of Ruth isn't about Ruth. It's about Naomi. Naomi's sons die, and she has no kids or grandkids. And so she has Ruth, who was her son's husband. And Ruth says, I'm going to go with you wherever you go. It's this really famous passage that usually gets read in, in uh, you know, weddings, which is kind of funny if you think it's being read between like a, a woman and her mother-in-law. <laughs> Freud would love this. Okay, so... We'll skip that part. So uh, Naomi has no kids. And, and Ruth says, I'm going to go with you. I'm going I'm to be with you. I'm going to give my whole life to you. Ruth meets Boaz. They end up getting married. They end up having a child. At the end of the book, Naomi is holding a child in her arms. What's the point? Well, the point is, how does, a, how does this woman go from barren to full of family, from, from nothing to life? Well, we have two things going on, two main characters. We have Ruth and we have Boaz. I think all of us are like Ruth, right? We all want to be welcomed in. We all want to be loved. We all want to know that there's space for us and that others are going to care for us. So in a lot of ways, I think we're all Ruth. And I think Boaz is like the institution, whoever it is that has power. The role of whoever it is that has power is to open their arms wide and to extend their blanket to cover every person. But Boaz's need Ruth's and Ruth's need Boaz's. Ruth is persistent to press in and say, I am going to have space here in this world. And Boaz says, yes, you are, of course. And the result of that work in the world at the end of the story is a child. Maybe we could say children. Children and children and children and children who all find that there is space for them in this community of faith. From Ruth, we have Lamentations. I won't say a lot about Lamentations. What's interesting about Lamentations, it's a lament over the destruction of the temple in Israel. And it's the most emotional book in all of the scriptures. But what's so interesting about Lamentations is even though it's the most emotional book, it's the most ordered book. So chapter 1 is 22 verses. It's an acrostic poem starting with each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which has 22 letters. It's third person, 22 verses. Se second chapter is third person, 22 verses. Third chapter is 66 verses. So 22 plus 22 plus 22, 66 and it goes from third person to first person. And whereas chapters one and two are, are very miserable and sorrowful, chapter three has a glimmer of hope, just, just a window of goodness in the midst of the pain. And then chapter four is back to third person, 22 verses. Chapter five, third person, 22 verses. What I love about this is it's different from how Westerners often lament. When we enter into lament as Westerners, I think we, we go, okay, I'm going to give myself to this lament, and then I'm going to be better, and I'm moving on. Isn't that very Western? But in Lamentations, it's a different order. You enter in sorrow, in the middle of sorrow, when you just give yourself over completely to it, there is a glimmer, just a moment of hope. It's not perfect hope. It doesn't make all the sorrow go away, but it's just enough to buoy your weary soul. And then back into chapters 4 and 5, which are sorrowful and weighty and hard. Maybe that's a more accurate picture for lament. Like, like maybe there never really is this moment where you're just, you're just done with it. Maybe we're always constantly moving through it, finding just enough to be buoyed for today and continuing on in it. At least that seems to be my experience over the last 17 or 18 months where my privilege and my power are no longer powerful enough to get me through the darkness. 
And so perhaps even in the last two years, we're learning what it means to be a people of lament. And maybe we need an ordering of lament that places it somewhere, hope somewhere in the middle, but, but not as its end. Then we have Esther. I think besides the prophets, that prophetic cycle of accusation, chaos, restoration, which I think fits really well right now, is Esther. Esther is the story. Israel has been conquered by Persia, and they're wondering if God has forgotten them. And God's not even mentioned in the book of Esther, which is why at certain points Hebrew, Jewish tradition has even wondered if that should be a book in the Bible, because it doesn't even speak about God. But, but at the end of the book, the whole story is turned on its head, and Israel becomes victorious, and life gets good for them. And I think for me, especially in this season of life, to be able to say, I'm not exactly sure where the divine is. But I hope, I hope like this story of Esther that has lasted all of this millennia, I hope the divine is behind it, doing something. Maybe even transfiguring today's chaos into something beautiful. Then we have Daniel. Uh, Daniel is this weird book, it's apocalyptic. Apocalyptic are all these weird signs and wonders, and uh, apocalypse literally means an unveiling, so it's like the curtain is pulled apart. And people like to do all kinds of weird things with Daniel, similar to Revelation. That's not the point. Uh, Daniel was written to Israel, not to us in 2021. Uh, but, But what's interesting about apocalypse is when people of faith are under empire, like Israel was under Babylon, they tend to speak in apocalypse to give hope in the midst of all of the chaos. Then we have Ezra and Nehemiah, traditionally one book in Hebrew tradition. Now, this is really interesting. Uh, Maybe you've heard a pastor preach on Ezra and Nehemiah when they've wanted to, like, pave the parking lot in 30 days, (laughs) right? It's like, let's do it really fast because Ezra and Nehemiah do things really fast. Ezra rebuilds the temple after it's destroyed. He does it really fast. And Nehemiah rebuilds the walls, and he does it really fast. And there's this emphasis on how fast it was done. And man, as Americans, we want to get some stuff done fast, right? So these are our books. But here's the thing. At the end of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, after building the wall, he goes away, comes back a few years later to check it out. And uh, the walls are in disrepair. And a lot of the Israelites have taken up housing in the uh, temple. It's become like an apartment complex. And Nehemiah is really upset. So this is how the book ends. This is the, the end. Nehemiah is ripping hair out of people's faces and beating them up. The end. (laughs) Who wants to build a parking lot? (laughs) I mean, these are terrible books. Kids know these are bad books. What's the point? The point is that humankind can get together and build things really fast. But building stuff fast isn't necessarily good stuff. And, And good stuff isn't even necessarily filled with the Spirit of God. And things that might get built too fast without the Spirit of God might not actually be good things. And I think we've all borne witness over the last few years to things that have been built fast that aren't necessarily good, in which we think violence is the only way to get it good again. But maybe it's never been good. Maybe it was never supposed to be built. Maybe it should have been built in a different kind of way. So that's a good book. And then we end with Chronicles. Now, Chronicles is a weird way to end the Hebrew scriptures, unless you you kind of back up and and think about it. So Chronicles is all about this king came after this king, came after this king, came after this king, and it tells about the kings of of Judah. And it ends with uh, King Cyrus of Persia saying, let him go up and build God a temple. Him is singular. Let him go up and build God a temple. 
So we have king after king after king after king, and the very last thing we have is let him go up and build a temple. That's the end of the Hebrew scriptures. Isn't that interesting? 400 years of silence, we move into Matthew chapter 1. We have a genealogy of kings in Judah, and we have a man, Jesus, who goes up and builds not a temple with human hands, but a temple comprised of human flesh. So it's a beautiful scene between the end of the Hebrew scriptures and 2 Chronicles and the beginning of the New Testament with Matthew. Okay, so that's the writings. And now I'll conclude uh, with the New Testament and talking a little bit about the epistles. So the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts, those tell the story. Revelation concludes the story. In between Acts and Revelation, we have the epistles, which we begin with Romans and end with Jude. Now, I would like to be able to tell you that the ordering of the New Testament is as strategic as the ordering of the Tanakh, but it is not. How do we get the order of the epistles? Well, a bunch of people in the church, Western church especially, decided to just go by author from biggest to smallest book. How's that? So we'll just start with Paul, his biggest book is Romans, and we'll work to his smallest book, which is Philemon, and then we'll go to the next big book, which is Hebrews, and then we go to James, and then we go to Peter and John and Jude, and we're done. So, so that's how those books go. And rather than touching on each book, I'd like to just briefly talk about how those books move, similar to the prophets, and then I'll conclude. Uh, epistles are letters written by a particular person to a particular people, usually a church, sometimes to a specific person. And so in this way, epistles are kind of like prophets, right? The latter prophets speak into the book of Kings. Well, the epistles speak into the book of Acts. That's what they're doing. So Acts is telling us about these churches that are popping up all over the, 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 the world of that time. And, and, and the epistles are speaking into those churches and into those communities. And so to be clear, when Paul was writing, you know, 1 Corinthians, Paul did not have Carl in mind, right? Paul was not, Carl Kopic is going to love this, right, in uh, September of 2021. No, that's, Paul was writing to specific people about specific situations, and so we see the epistles speaking into the church and the life of the church in the book of Acts. As an ancient letter, there were some basic components to an epistle. So I'll give those to you briefly. Uh, there's a greeting, like, hello, friends. And then there's a blessing, the grace of the Lord be with you. And then there's a thanksgiving. The thanksgiving usually gives you a window into the theme of the book. I give thanks to God for how unified you are in Christ. And then there's the content. The majority of the content is theological. And then at the end of each epistle is a more content that gets really practical, right? So um, love each other like this. If you're married, relate to each other like this. Parent your kids like this. Work in the world like this. It gets really practical. And then at the end, there's a farewell. So greeting, blessing, theological content, practical content, farewell. So that's what you're always looking for. So you get into Romans, and Paul is unpacking what he thinks the gospel is. In 1 Corinthians, he's just writing back to this church that he founded, and he's answering a bunch of questions that they have about church life. 2 Corinthians, he's been away from the church for a while, and he feels like they've forgotten him. And so he's writing to tell them how important he is. I just love that. I am important! <laughs> and he's trying to get them to listen to what he has to say. And then you just take off from there. But I'll give you an example like Galatians. So thinking of this order, right, that has thanksgiving, that gives you the theme of the book. Well, moving into the book of Galatians, uh, we read these words. 
Paul, an apostle, sent neither by human commission nor from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the members of God's family who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So that's greetings. Now, here's the uh, blessing. Grace to you and peace to God our, from God our Father who gave himself for our sins and set us free to whom be the glory forever and ever. Now, here's the thanksgiving. You ready for it? I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Right? So, so if you're aware of how this, these epistles move, you realize there's no thanksgiving here. Paul is hot. And the whole book of Galatians is about uh, the church moving away from grace and back to law in order to belong. So we could just move our way through all of Paul's writings. Hebrews is about trying to make sense of the sacrificial atonement system in light of Christ. James is contrasting faith with works. If you have faith but not works, then your faith might not mean a whole lot. Uh, Peter is about strangers in the world being set apart as different. We're called to be different. John is all about love. God is love. And in my mind, John makes it as simple as possible to share in Christian life together. If you love God but do not have love, you do not know God. That is pretty simple. And I think it's a good word to religious people. And then Jude is just 24 short verses. It's about mercy and peace. And I love the way that Jude ends. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to make you stand without blemish in the presence of his glory. Keeping you from falling, making you stand without blemish. Yes, of course, this is ancient language. But it's point, it's hope. Well, similar to the latter prophets that proclaim a pattern in which chaos can be transfigured into restoration. And similar to the Kethuvim, the writings that address so many meaningful matters such as love and worship and life in a world that appears to be absent of the divine. These books long for, the epistles hope for. I mean, the whole, you could say the whole reason that these authors are writing to these people of faith is because they believe in humankind's ability to change to grow up into more wholeness and into more love and into more life. Life in which we flourish in a community of faith birthed out of the Jewish tradition as we follow in the ways of Jesus together. And we'll look at the story and all of the books that tell that story next Sunday. Let us pray. God, thank you for this ancient, curious to use Bonhoeffer's word, broken text that has been around for millennia, that has given shape to life for millions. And I pray and ask that this text would fill us with hope, hope in ourselves that we can change, hope in our world that it can change, hope in change being able to make things good. We need much good today, and our hearts long for it. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Thank you.